Hola. So this morning we move on to the third of the four measurables. I, whenever I think of it, I often have that sense, this is the one that's so easy to overlook. Because love and compassion, I mean, they're the dynamic duo. And equanimity, equanimity this even-heartedness, is so enormously important. It does get a lot, of, a lot of attention in the Theravada, but also ever so much in the Mahayana tradition. This is the foundation of bodhicitta. If we're engaging with other sentient beings with partiality, I like this group, I don't like that group, and so forth, then there's no bodhicitta. You don't even need, need to take the second step, because the second step will still be based on such partiality. But the one that I think is easily overlooked, and yet, if anything, especially in modern times, these times we're living in right now, is of special importance, is the third one. It's mudita, which simply means joy. Um, but in this context, it has much more of the connotation of empathetic joy, not just being happy about something, but empathetic joy, a shared joy. Part of the brilliance of the presentation of these four immeasurables is that while highlighting that each one has something that is diametrically opposed to it, like that which is diametrically opposed to compassion, is cruelty. It's kind of, you can figure it out semantically. If compassion is the aspiration may, let's say, uh, I'm trying to, Frank, there's no Frank here. I'm not thinking of any Frank. I just wanted a name. If No, this, this is one I always use. A Jack, a Jack and, as in Jack and Jill. Okay, I'll just use that again. So Jack, as in Jack and Jill. If, um, now nah, I've just lost my train of thought. Please come back. I have a use for you. <laughs> Where was I? I was just groping around for a name and I got lost in the, in the woods. Yes, yes. So, Jack, Jack and Jill. Uh, if compassion for Jack is the aspiration, Jack, may you, find, may you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering, then that which is diametrically opposed to that is Jack, may you find suffering and the causes of suffering. May you find suffering and the causes of suffering. Well, that's cruelty. So cruelty is diametrically opposed, right? So each of the four measurables has something diametrically opposed to it. But each also has this false facsimile of the so-called near enemy. And that is something that looks like the actual virtue but in very meaningful ways, is not. And may actually undermine it in very serious ways. So just to spend a, a bit of time, a short time, I want to be as concise as I can. The near enemy, as I'm sure many of you know, the near enemy of compassion is despair, hopelessness, chronic depression, low-grade depression, high-grade depression, often that's, that, that comes together with a whole package of a sense of helplessness, and then a sense of helplessness often comes with a package of low self-esteem. The sense of feeling unloved, unworthy of love. Uh, the tragic, I think most, the most tragic way of expressing that would be, that I know of, would be, if people knew me better, they would like me less. And therefore, I will do my best to make sure people don't know me very well. So I can maintain some semblance of congenial relationships with others but I'll protect myself. I'll protect yeah, by not letting other people in. Well, all of this is a near enemy, false facsimile of compassion. And again, uh, these four measurables are presented as virtues of the heart, but when we really unpack them, there is so much, I mean, to my mind, it's all inspiring wisdom in them because each of the four immeasurables acts as a natural antidote to the near enemies of another one. 
the near enemies of false facsimiles. So the near enemy of, of compassion is this despair, hopelessness, and so on. But then among the four, four immeasurables, the one that arises as the natural antidote to that, the remedy, is empathetic joy. Empathetic joy. There's such profound truths here. Why does anybody become depressed at any time? <laughs> Great big question. Because of what we're attending to. Because of what we're attending to. It could be one's physical health, the loss of a loved one, uh, global warming. It could be, it could be brain, well, now there are factors, but they're actually quite small. It could be biological. But I've spoken with people, experts in the field, and ex- they say extremely rarely is the actual primary cause, the significant cause of depression, biological in nature. I don't know, but I've spoken with world experts, people who have devoted their whole lives to this, and they say depression is not fundamentally a neurobiological disorder. It's not where it comes from. Now, if I focus on negative things all the time, maybe negative aspects of my own being, or negative aspects of my childhood, or negative aspects of other people's behavior, or anything, if I'm focusing my attention in that way, will that trigger certain types of biological patterns within the brain? Definitely yes. But those biological processes were not the cause, they were the effect of attending in a certain way, attending to a certain select body of information or knowledge, and then attending to it in a certain way. Right? So I can focus on some, let's say, evils in the world. There have been so many tragedies that human beings have brought about, out of anger, hatred, delusion, and so forth. And so I can focus on those. And then I can just go into the depths of despair. Human nature is so terrible. Look what we do each other. It just makes you want to weep forever. And I can go into a total tailspin. And after all, we're biologically driven. We're animals at best. We're just here to survive, procreate. Freud said we're moved by the death wish and libido and those are our fundamental drives. And, oh, yeah, yeah. and then the Christians say we have original sin. Oh, and that sounds even worse. You know? And now, you know, focusing on that, you just throw yourself in the pits of despair. But you can focus on the same realities and you can shift it over to compassion. That same object, but different way of viewing. So, it's very well known in modern science that attention is extremely selective. It's one of the most universal truths. It's a really important truth. One of the great discoveries. I don't think they were the first to discover it, but who cares? But modern cognitive psychologists working with attention, they recognize attention is extremely selective. Within the visual field, for example, it's famous. We're getting a tiny, tiny fraction of information from the whole, all the information coming in from the visual field. And we're about 80% ocular being, we human beings. We're picking up, attending to, and therefore making real only a tiny fraction. Most of it's peripheral or not even, not even coming up on the horizon. We're not even aware of it at all. And that's just visual. How about what's going on in the mind from moment to moment to moment? How much are we actually picking up on, attending to? And the auditory and the tactile and so forth. We got, we're being flooded every moment by, you know, it's like an avalanche of information coming in by way of six windows. We're being flooded, we're being drowned in information every single moment. And the only way we keep our heads above water and don't fall into total confusion and chaos is, being by, is by being very selective. We have no choice. That's the way we have to function. We're human beings with our brains. It often happens that we feel that reality is thrust upon us. It just happened to us. 
and we're the victims of it. If it's a rotten reality, then we're just the victims of it. What can I do? This happened. I was in an automobile accident. What can I do? I mean, it was a, and, and one of my loved ones died. It was a tragedy. It was a horrible tragedy, and it just happened, and there's nothing I can do about it. Or adversities, you know, natural calamities and so forth. Well, it just happened. It just happened. There's nothing I can do about it. It's very easy to feel helpless. As if the world is absolutely there and it's absolutely happening to us and we're simply passive recipients of what reality dishes up. And that is the impression one can easily get from a lot of the media and so on. But it's profoundly misleading. So as we move on to, I could really go on and on here. I think these are enormously important topics. And they're so practical. So, so practical. Because one can say from one perspective, why aren't we, all of us, intelligent educated human beings who are aware of what's going on in the world by way of the media, who doesn't, you know, among us here, and among everybody listening to my podcast, you all have a computer or access to a computer, otherwise you're not listening to the podcast, right? So for all of us who have that type of access to information, why are we not all absolutely caught up in despair to an utterly debilitating point? Why are we not? When we're aware of what's going on, you know, uh, just by the way, another little statistic. Right now, the statistical model suggests that by the end of this century, the human population will be 11 billion. And right now it's seven. Uh, how do you think it's going to work out? Diminishing resources, which we're gobbling up faster and faster and faster. Rapacious, rapacious appetite for energy, for food, sweeping out the, the you know, sucking up all the fish out of the ocean so that apparently they're going to be empty by, night, by 2050. So some predictions state. So that's just one little statistic. Oh, okay, 11 billion people. Now, the, too bad that the Earth is not a balloon. Then we just blow into it and get bigger. And then we have more trees and more vegetation, more vegetables, fruits, and so forth, and more fish because it'd be a bigger ocean, you know. But well, there we are. So that's about, that sounds like it's going to be a difficult century to me. If you really take it in, I mean, check with the environmentalists. There are some that said, some environmentalists really taught people to say, we've passed the tipping point now for global warming. We had a chance, we had a chance, but we were too busy thinking about the bottom line in the next five years. And what about our profit shares? And what about the stock value of our companies? You know, we, 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 we can't be thinking about global warming. I mean, our, our shares have dropped by 20%. You know? Or people in government think, oh, they'll vote us out of office. If we start having every, everybody tighten their belt, they'll just kick us out and they'll invite somebody else in who will not tighten the belts. And I've got to be there for my second term. And my third term. I, I've got it. I mean, that's, okay, that's my top priority. I've got to stay in power. And if global warming has to be put on the back burner, well, you know, don't blame me. I'm just a politician. Don't blame me, etc., etc. So why are we not all weeping all the time? You know, it doesn't look very good. And that's just the environment, let alone the economy, let alone social relationships, let alone politics, let alone militant fundamentalism of various types. And so what can we do when we have a massive amount of information that would be su suggest, would invite us to despair? Well, what I just said was a lot of selective information. There's an awful lot that's going on that I didn't mention just now. I highlighted some points that are true, but was that the whole truth and nothing but the truth of the 20th century? No, nobody can say the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You would never stop talking. So, 
I'm going to stop talking. At least in this mode, we're going to go to a guided meditation and take the reins of our horse. It's often said that the, you know, the mind rides the steed or that we should direct our own minds as, as a rider on a horse or an elephant tamer, you know, taming and then using, directing, working with an elephant. And so it's time to take the reins of our attention and focus where we will and recognize that it is a freedom. We're not compelled to think to attend to this or that and we're not compelled to... Th- to attend in this way or that way. So there's two things there. What are you attending to? And how are you attending to it? And we have freedom. But only if we recognize that we have freedom and then make use of it, and that requires a bit of shamatha. That's why I keep on coming back to that. You know, you can have all the best ideas in the world, but if you can't stay focused, then you're not getting the benefit. Your mind just wanders off or spaces out. So this is why these four measurables are actually included in the, in the category of samadhi. Because each of these four measurables can be a, a, a method for developing samadhi in an incredibly benevolent, meaningful, sublime, and transformative way. Okay? So we're going to have a rich morning, so don't scurry off at 9.30. Uh, we have some interesting material. I think if you enjoy it even one-tenth as much as I will, you're going to have a great time. Please find a, well, we'll start with our chanting and then go on to meditation.
like to switch positions, please do so now. taking delight or satisfaction, or at least having a deep sense of contentment in the fact that right now we have nothing else we need to do besides cultivate our hearts and minds, practice Dharma, with that sense of gratitude for the opportunity, rejoicing in the opportunity, that settle the body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Quote again this extraordinary statement, provocative statement by William James, for the moment what we attend to is reality. And couple that with the extraordinary statement by Stephen Hawking, that even each of us chooses our past by selecting a type of measurement system that we used to know it. I invite you now to take hold of the reins of your attention and direct it as will so that your attention serves you well, so that the reality that rises up to meet you is not simply one that is forced upon you, but one that you wisely select for your own and others' well-being. This is your choice. 
It's not moving away from reality. It's selecting the type of reality you wish to focus on so that it becomes real for you. So I invite you now from this perspective in the present moment to direct your attention to the past as far back in this lifetime as as you can recall. Now attention is always selective, usually unconsciously, simply habitually, or by the intensity of the stimulation coming in. But this time I invite you to select events, realities from your past and focus on them in a particular way. This is no less realistic than any other way and it may be much more realistic than many others. So attend in this way, if you will, going back to your earliest childhood memories. Bring to mind and focus your attention on those acts of kindness that have come your way, that have been directed to you, to protect you, to take care of you, to enrich you. It may very well begin with your parents, other relatives, close friends, siblings. Focus focus specifically on those who have shown you kindness and linger on those memories. So that's the target. How helpless we were when we were so young could never have survived on our own. And these people, they made it possible for us to survive, to grow up. And as you attend to their acts of kindness, Take delight, rejoice in these acts of kindness that happened to come your way and enriched your life. Mudita, take joy. And naturally, to arouse a sense of gratitude would be only natural. So with gratitude and rejoicing, appreciation, acknowledgement, Focus on the acts of kindness that have been directed to you from early childhood and then gradually move along the timeline to early childhood, late childhood, adolescence, young adulthood. For some of you, that's where you are right now. For others, that's decades ago. Gradually move for the next 10 minutes or so through the timeline of your own life But highlight these acts of kindness from those who are near and far, who've helped you, sustained you, nurtured you hedonically in terms of your basic material needs, but also eudaimonically or spiritually, 
those who have helped you find meaning in your life. Meaning, joy, virtue, wisdom. Take delight in the spirit of gratitude. And if you wish, with every outbreath, you may, may breathe out the light from your heart, a light of joy, a light of gratitude, embracing each one who has served you well, if you find it helpful.
Now let's begin all over again. Focus your attention once again back to your earliest memories in childhood. But this time, as you move forward, up to the present moment, seek out and focus on those acts of kindness and acts of service, of generosity, of love and affection that you have shared with others, the ways in which you have enriched the lives of others, helped them, protected them, nurtured them, provided companionship, friendship, provided what they needed in the moment. Attend to the good you've brought to the world. And each time you alight upon, or your, your attention is focused on, such a deed, take delight. Rejoice in this. It is not self-congratulation. It's not pumping up the ego. It's simply taking delight in that which is worthy of delight. Virtue. Whoever enacts it, it's virtue. And it's worthy of joy. Move through your life in a spirit of rejoicing in all the good that you brought to the world, to those near and far. And move up to the present moment. Focus not only the, on the virtues that are interpersonal, but also the virtues of times you spent in solitude, seeking to purify your own mind stream, purify your behavior, and cultivate virtue. This too is a gift. This too is your wonderful offering to the world. From the inside out, Focus, too, on the good you've brought to other sentient beings, to animals. And you may have also been active in trying to preserve the environment. This, too, is a great good you bring to the world.
Then release all memories, all appearances and objects of the mind. And simply rest your awareness in its own nature. especially when it comes to the past, our tendency to reify, or to objectify, tends to be rock solid. When we think this happened, what year did the United States declare independence? What year was the Battle of 1812? And so on. You know, We have these hard facts, right? They were what absolutely happened from God's own perspective or from nobody's perspective. They absolutely happen. They inherently, intrinsically, objectively, really, really, really happened. And that's the large-scale view of their science, simply because scientists are human beings, like anybody else. We reify everything. You know? And since we reify everything, we reify the past. That's what really happened. And people have different perspectives on it, but something really happened. And okay, so it's like a bunch of blind people looking at an elephant. One person gets this part, one person... But it's still an elephant. You know, that's reification. The elephant is the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is reification. Right? And as we do this for our understanding of the history of the cosmos, of life on our planet, human history, and so on, we of course do the same thing for our own lives. We have a narrative in our minds. It's really so crucial to what gives us a sense of identity. Who are you? If you suddenly became a total amnesiac, which of course does happen sometimes, then your very sense of identity is just shattered. I mean, I don't, I know who I am right now, but that's kind of like a cipher. It's a, there's just not much to it. And so, but who was I? Who was I? Or people who don't know where their parents were. Sometimes that's a big deal. But I don't know my parents. I have to find, what were my origins? What my origins? Where did I come from? Who were my bio? You know, that sense of identity, that I'm rooted someplace, 
rooted someplace. You remember the wise minister asking the wandering beggar prince, tell me about yourself. Where were you rooted? Where were you born? Tell me about your early childhood. He's asking him for, where is, where is that inherently existent past of yours that defines you as an inherently existent beggar? Identify it. Oh, and then you find you can't. But then we, in contrast, we can go back. I can tell you something about my childhood. I simply know by hearsay that I was born in a certain city in a certain year. I don't know that. I can't remember. But people I trust tell me that's where I was born and that was the date and so forth. So we do have memories. Most of us are not amnesiacs. And then as soon as we have memories, we tend to reify them. That is, I know the real story. I know the real story. My siblings somewhat. My parents somewhat. But what went on inside me? They can only see the outer behavior and so forth. What was I really thinking? And so my parents have one view. My siblings have another view. Childhood friends have another view. But look, I've got the right view. Because I have the insight. I have privileged access to what was I wishing for, desiring, feeling. What did I not share with others? I've got the real skivvy, we say in American English. I've got the real scoop. I know what really happened. So sorry. It's all made up. Not to say that I wasn't born in Pasadena, of course, of course, but the notion that that's the true story, that since I have an insider's perspective, I've got the one that really happened. Well, again, if, we, if you've just done it, how much of your past could you remember? What is it? One-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent? Were we selective? And how did the selection process occur? Why did you remember? I'm, I did it myself, of course. Why do you remember this and not that? How long did you have to go forward in time before you remembered your first act of kindness? And then how many were there through your teens? Oh, everybody's laughing. <laughs> and yet, you know, if you could really, if you had a little video camera or one of those what, Google glasses on or something like that, you can record every moment, like in the Truman Show, something like that, somebody chronicling every moment. You'd find you did a bunch of stuff, little acts. You know, you washed the dishes. You did something like this. You did, you know, a little act. You, helped, you gave somebody directions that was looking, you know, lost. And you did something, probably. Probably many, many times. But, you know, it's all vanished into the mist of... Mist. And so now what we can come out of that is, okay, okay. So I have a very spotty, highly selective, biased, heavily interpreted. But nevertheless, it really happened. What really happened? And from whose perspective? Stephen Hawking really rocks, rocks our boat here. He said, right now. Now, he's speaking cosmologically, but the microcosm works as well for the microcosm. The macrocosm, microcosm. He says, there's no absolute history of the universe. Nothing really happened independently. If it did, we'd never know about it, because that's what would occur independently of all measurements. All the history, you can choose your history for the universe. How? Ask a certain question. And now set up a system of measurement, so you're making a valid observation. You remember that? That's the first step. Do you know it? Do you know it by direct observation or inference? And then you improve and improve and improve, and that's how you come up with a valid reality. In other words, I'm not just making it up. Not making it up. I would like to say that when I was born, if you want to hear some really good stuff, when I was born in Pasadena, rainbows appeared all... Jeez, oh, I couldn't even get two syllables out and you're already laughing. Jeez. I was just to get the point of the devas rejoicing and so forth. But you already laughed me off the stage when I said rainbows. 
you know. I would like to say that, of course, the only thing unusual that happened when I was born is I'm lying on my back, the doctor who just, you know, brought me out is, is gazing down at me and I peed right over his head. That was my rainbow. It was a yellow rainbow. <laughs> That's what I was told. That was my, I, I've, I've come. I've come. <laughs> Pissed right over the medical establishment. That's <laughs> my first symbolic act. <laughs> I know what you did to William James, and I'm, I'm going to get back at you. So in any case, no, we can't just make things up. You know. But Stephen Hawking, he was never suggesting that. Something so much more subtle. But this relates to empathetic joy. This relates to low self-esteem. This re- relates to the sense of being a victim. There are people in this world right now, we know this is true, who are immensely rich, extremely powerful, and have an incredible reputation, and feel they're victims. Feel they're victims. And they'll tell you, oh, I, my parents did this, my, and my, my manager did this, and my... And, and, and they're walking around with their lower lip hanging out. Oh, I'm such a victim. I'm such a victim. No. There's probably some truth to it. They're selecting. If you want to select a way to regard yourself as a victim, you, it doesn't matter who you are. Buddha could. Buddha could. He, if he wanted to. Those six years, why didn't somebody help me? I was looking. I was so looking. And Why didn't somebody help me? I was so sincere in six years. Just blown. Where were those, you know... He, he, he can start feeling sorry for himself, right? About the six. Or that first guy when I was, I just achieved enlightenment. The first guy I met, he just blew me up and said, whatever, dude. That just, that, I just wanted to go back and sit under the Bodhi tree. I mean, if that's the way people are, they just want to say, whatever, dude, sarcastically. Ah, oh, geez, who needs that? I'm going to sit in a Bodhi tree for the rest of my life. I don't need this. I feel so rotten. He just ruined my day. I'm walking back. And guys in Saranath, well, work it out yourself. He could, right? if that's what he wanted to do. So then the notion, it's getting really to the core here of our identity, who we think we are, who we fashioned, or what we fashioned of ourselves, is so much made up of our memories, embedded like raisins in a muffin, embedded in our very continuum, mind continuum, and our very sense of identity. And the notion that, in fact, whatever we think of the past was not inherently existent, it did not objectively exist, it's not inherently existent, it exists only relative to the framework, the cognitive framework. And I can shift my cognitive framework, if I choose. I can decide, by an act of volition, to attend to other aspects of my childhood than the ones I habitually attend to. I can choose that. It's not being unrealistic, it's simply selecting a different database. And I wish to focus on and really highlight those acts of, of kindness, compassion, and so forth and so on throughout my whole timeline. I can focus on that instead of all the rotten things people have done to me. It's my choice. And of course, we're not engaging in deliberate ignorance, but we do tend, we human species, do tend to have a, a deeply ingrained habit of focusing on the negative. It's very well, very widely known. It's everywhere in the press. Every single day, 99%, 95%, it's all negative. Does that mean what's happening in the world every single day is the 95 Most parents are killing their children. Most parents are abusing. That doesn't get any news coverage, you know. 
when parents are loving parents. Ever see that on the front page of the New York Times? There's a couple in Manhattan. They're really swell parents. If anybody in North America kills their kids, that's going to be on the front page. Like one man killed his five children. That Oh, you betcha, that's news. But everybody else in the neighborhood who lovingly take care of their children, who needs to know about that? So, incredible bias. And that's in the press. Why? Because the press are people, and we're people. That's what we do. We tend to focus on the negative. It's probably a survival mechanism. Protect yourself, protect yourself. Those nasty things happened in the past, they can come up, brace, fight, flight, hunker down, look out, they're going to come and get you. Well, if that's the world you want to live in, then that's the one you chose. That's the one you chose, though. It was not forced upon you. In other words, our own past, our own, I mean, really, it's astonishing. Our past right now exists in a superposition state. Our past exists in a state of potentiality. Until we direct our attention to it, with a question, and then that reality rises up relative to that question, relative to that memory. And that's as equally valid. If it's, assuming it's a valid memory, you've actually targeted something you know, we can refashion our personal narrative in a way that's more conducive to our flourishing well-being. We can refashion our sense of other people and, the, and how they've treated us. We can refashion our very sense of identity by attending, attending to the good we brought on. Not, again, to be looking through the world through rose-tinted glasses, but to compensate for the soot-colored glasses we've been looking through. The bias is already there. It's intense. It's strong. That's why there is so much low self-esteem, depression, self-loathing, misanthropy, and so forth. It's because we are focusing on the negative. It's a massive thing. Frankly, Tibetans don't do it as much. They're learning. They're hanging out with us. Our viruses are catching them. And so they're learning. But by and large, no. When I told Gyanlosan Gyatso, the abbot of the first monastery where I studied, when he, told, when he said that human, human tendency is to look upon our own side as being really good, but the other side is negative, he said, that's just a human tendency. We look upon my side as good, other side is negative. I went to him afterwards and said, Gyanlosan, that's actually not true for me. I tend to really focus on my own thought, faults. Really. And he looked at me, I, I can remember his face, he had an incredibly sweet lama, as well as being a superb scholar. But he looked at me and his, his face just crunkled like I told a really kind of cute but stupid joke. I'll, I'll, I, 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 you, can't, you can't see his face, I can. It was just, it was bemusement. He looked at me, with, that's the perfect word, bemusement. And, he, and when I just told him, I tend to really focus on my negative qualities, he said, no, no you don't. He couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. I was kind of like the first Western he'd really engage with, you know. Because he'd always been engaging with Tibetans. He didn't speak English. We can refashion our very identity. We can refashion our sense of the people who have interacted with us over the course of our lives and refashion, select another bandwidth, like the radio. The other one had is reality. It's not denying that it has a reality. It's simply denying that it has an inherently existent reality. That that's what really happened. That was what happened relative to that perspective. But we fall into habits. We tend to remember the same things. Have you, have you ever done this before? Did you get reruns? When you're trying, what did I do? What kind of act of kindness did I do from the age of zero to ten? Three. The same three. <laughs> 
Like, that's all happened? Ten years? That was a lot of minutes. That's all you come up with? The same three? And then if you remember, what were the rotten things that were done to me? It's the same whatever the number is. It's the same. We get these reruns, and we kind of take them to be real. That's a fiction. That is a fiction. To think this is the whole truth and nothing but the truth, this is what really happened. Well, that's not just a selection. That's a fiction. Because that's not what really happened. That's kind of one of those movies that is totally, you know, has an enormous amount of artistic license, and they say, based on real facts. We gave you two hours, and there were three facts in there, <laughs> inspired by real events, you know. But it's fiction. It had a bit of inspiration by something that happened, you know. But it's fiction. That's what we do. So this is the great liberating power of the meditative cultivation of empathetic joy, to balance out, to refashion, to attend to things that we often don't attend to. And then that enables us to attend to the negative, the sorrows and the vices that we have brought to the world that we've also been subject to by others in the world and view them in a different way. It's not that we don't look at them anymore. Buddhism is not a path of ignorance or ignoring. It is a path of freedom to attend to those adversities, those difficult times, in a different way. I found that enormously beneficial. Some things that were done to me over time. I mean, I just this is like one sentient being, nothing special. But that was really bad, that was really bad. And just feeling resentment for a long time, and then, and then after a while then feeling compassion, and then feeling equanimity. I'll just give one brief example. The, the, the man, who's a layperson, Kumabashi, I've mentioned it briefly, who um, gave me the oral transmission and, and commentary on the seven-point mind training. Among people I knew rather well, there have been a few, Paul Lingatso, 33 years in concentration camp. Kumabashi never did, but the amount of tragedy he went through would leave, I think, most people crippled. Just crippled. I won't go into details, but just take my word for it. He was an aristocrat, and he was Tibet, and then there was a cultural revolution. Okay, So, connect the dots. He left before the cultural revolution, but he'd left in you know, 1959 with this massacre, massacre of Tibetans in Lhasa, and then, of course, the whole country. And so I look at his life, and I knew where he was living, living in what by almost any standard worldwide would be regarded as real poverty. And yet a man of extraordinary erudition, incredibly gifted. He was quite brilliant, actually. But total poverty. He lived in a one-room shack with no toilet, one light bulb. In utter contentment. In total contentment. Serene, peaceful, benevolent, kind, warm, loving, generous. Incredibly generous. I think we just lost the... um, Need a battery? Oh, now it's come back. So he said, this is going to be real short, but he said that from his perspective, he spoke very much as he, speaking from the, from the center of his mandala. It's very important. From the center of his mandala. He said, from my perspective, I feel a great sense of gratitude to the Chinese communists and what they did to me. And, to me. Because they tremendously deepened what happened to this tremendous loss, absolutely tragic loss that he and his family experienced in every way, he said, what that did for me was it tremendously deepened my Dharma practice. It tremendously deepened my Dharma practice. Therefore, I feel deep gratitude to the Chinese communists. 
who basically took everything away from him, killed his children, and so forth, and left him with, no, of course, no country. He had to flee for his life. Otherwise, he would have been killed, no question. And he feels gratitude. So he's not putting on rose-tinted glasses. He's not trying to for, what, for, forgive and forget. Who's going to forget that? There's no forgetting there. But for him, in, in his being in the center of his mandala, that spurred him on to deepening, ripening, maturing, enriching his Dharma practice. And anybody who does that for you is a great spiritual friend. Whether it's a Dharma, teaching, a Dharma teacher sitting on a cushion or whether it's somebody killing your children. I'm going to go on a little bit this morning. I think we have enormously rich material and I'm going to go right to the Buddhist teachings on causality. Because this is dealing out with causality, isn't it? Everything we're talking about here. Causality. Of how this leads to that. How we can actually reshape how the past influences, influences in the present. I'm going to say that again. We can reshape how the past influences us in the present by shifting our perspective in the present, on the past. It's a loop. You remember that strange loop of John Wheeler? That strange loop, that pratyatisambhutpada, those links of dependent origination that go around? You make a decision and now you're in the story, but you chose the story. Remember? Or as Hilary Putnam, he's one of my favorite contemporary philosophers, he said, because he's not a metaphysical realist, nor is he a nihilist, he's found this slender middle way, quite brilliant, called pragmatic or internal realism. And he said, we are, we are, we are, each of us is in a novel and we are the authors of the novel. We're in a fiction. But it's our fiction and we're writing the story. It sounds very Buddhist to me. And he's a Jew. He's a practicing Jew. So, causality. What's up with causality? And there's this wonderful story and I mangled, I mangled the core teaching the other day, and so I want to make amends. Uh, the story is this. It's a, fam- a famous one. And that is, of his first five disciples, one was called Asaji, Asaji, five, among the five. He became an arhat pretty quickly. And he was out on his alms round on one day, and his whole demeanor was one of tremendous serenity. He simply exuded an air, an aura, or maybe he created a pranic field around him. I've spoken with some of you about that. A pranic field about, about him because of his mind and the mind related to the prana system and the prana system being not only currents that go through nadis but also creating a field. Call it whatever you like, but he created a field, an aura, an ambience of serenity, of peacefulness around him. And there was somebody who saw him, Asaji, on his alms round. And the name was Shariputra. The young Shariputra, who was a seeker, and, a, and, a, and the, he was ch- a childhood buddies with, uh, with Magvalyayanaputra, or more commonly known in Pali, Moggallana. Shariputra and Moggallana were buddies when they were kids, best friends. They both became disillusioned with samsara. They both set out in the search for freedom. And they worked together for some time, going here, going there, just like Gautama, you know, and they weren't finding, they weren't finding. They were not finding the liberation that they were seeking. So they decided to split up. Two buddies, they say, you know, we'll cover more territory. Back then, again, no GPS, no, you just, you're walking. You're walking one person, not even a cell phone. What a bummer. You know, simplified life, but communication was more difficult and transportation was slow. So they made a pact before they split up 
That is, for example, is, uh, so Elizabeth, by the way, is, well, we'll call you Elizabeth for right now. Elizabeth, we're all buddies. So imagine we're both, we're both setting out. And he said, Elizabeth, so she's Sariputra and I'm Mogalana. And say, Elizabeth, we're both seeking liberation. If you find it, if you find someone who can lead you to liberation, you let me know. And if I find it, because we'll cover more territory, then I'll let you know. And then we, you know, make a handshake. Right? Like that. Well, that's what it was. These two guys made a handshake. This is our pact. Whoever finds it first, let the other one know. Well, Shariputra, back to Shariputra, is out walking, and he sees this, this ascetic, this monk, mendicant, Sramana, walking peacefully, caught his attention. And he comes over to him, a classic greeting of one Shrama to another. I don't, I don't have right here exactly what he said, but basically, friend, what path are you following? Who is your teacher? What tradition are you following? Because kind of like, you impressed me, so what's up? And I don't have the whole narrative here. I just have the core of it. One of the things he says is, I'm just newly entered into the discipline, so I'd really like you to, def- uh, to defer you to the, my teacher. My teacher is the Buddha. Uh, and he said, Ehipasi, come and see. He said, come and see, Ehipasi. But he did give Shariputra one nugget. He is an arhat, after all. He had something to offer. Because he'd found the liberation he was seeking. He'd found what Shariputra was looking for. And he turned to Shariputra and said, well, this is what I can tell you of the teachings of the, of the Buddha, the awakened one. Ye dharma hetu prabhava hetun tesham tathagato hyavatat tesham jayo niroda evam vadi mahasramana the best I can do. That's the Sanskrit. Okay, the Pali is very close. And the meaning of that is simple, and here's a real translation. Regarding phenomena that arise from a cause, the Tathagata taught their cause, and also their, also their cessation. Those were the words of the great mendicant. And upon hearing these words, Shariputra realized Nirvana and became a stream enterer. One verse stream enter, okay? became an Arya. It's remarkable. We look at it and say, what was the cool part? What was the profound part? I mean, causality, okay. but Well, clearly Shariputra saw or heard and understood something that most people don't hear. And they heard it read, and clearly Asaji knew that he was imparting something of tremendous importance, that he could have utterly radical transformative power, bring him into the path, actually bring somebody d- deeply onto the path, stream enter, Arya, direct realization of Nirvana, uh, with a verse. So Asaji knew what he was doing, and Shariputra, just like the five that the Buddha approached, Shariputra was just ready, just ripe, to hear one verse and realize Nirvana. And it was simply about causality. Now what we see here, bearing in mind the tremendous pluralism of thought, of practices, belief systems, monotheistic, polytheistic, personal God, impersonal God, skepticism, atheism, materialism, agnosticism, pretty much everything we have nowadays, they had already kind of covered the boards. Obviously not in exactly the same way. But everything I just said, yeah, there were schools. And again, there was, no, there was no church or governments that demanded conformity. And the, and the Indian population was, was cool with that. 
So when a person would renounce all material success, comfort, security, and so forth, and just say, like Gautama, I'm heading out. There's only, now I have only one priority. I need to find liberation. Then the society as a whole, they said, you're worth it. We're going to give you a free lunch for the rest of your life. And none of them, none of them starved. And they could be, again, they could be atheists, materialists. They, they could be theists, non-theists. They could eventually be Buddhist. If you're devoting your whole life to finding truth, that's going to be a good investment. You're a, this is a, a low-cost investment. And dividends for our society, for my children, my family, my community, are potentially very high. If you find something, I'm sure you're going to share it. And therefore, one lunch a day, that was the deal. No breakfast, no dinner, but one meal that will keep you going. That society, that was to my mind, now here's an opinion, ready? Everything I just said is true. Here's an opinion. I think that was the most civilized society on the planet. Socrates, who came just a little bit later, you really must read Socrates one day. What he wrote about eudaimonia is breathtaking. It's fantastic. Of course, they killed him. But before they killed him, what he had to say about eudaimonia was really great. He upset people. So Gautama preceded him in this society that supported sufficiently truth seekers. He found what he was looking for. And the core... I mean, Asaji could have said anything. He could have told the Four Noble Truths, Twelve Links. He could have talked about the Five Skandhas. Anything. I mean, he, he probably knew a lot. He was an arhat. But he, that, that was the verse he gave. And bear in mind, some of the... There was schools in India at that time who believed in fate. Fate. That karma is fate. Predestination. That you're just like a piece of driftwood floating down a stream, but you're not actually making any decisions at all. And there were others that thought, it's just random. Just go figure. Just stuff happens. Just stuff happens for no reason at all. So, so why? They had true freedom of thought and freedom of expression. Freedom of expression. Again, there was no church or government to say, oh, no, now we have to burn you or you go get house arrest. They've never been able to do that in India. India's a kind of by free-spirited people. So but what Gautama highlighted was Causation, what Asaji pulling out one pearl out of this treasure chest of the Buddhist teachings that he would share with this, this man who was clearly sincere, Shariputra, and spoke to him simply of causality. Right? Shariputra became chief nirvana, and of course, being the good, good friend that he was, then he somehow tracked, tracked down Mogalana. Don't ask me how. They didn't even have driver's licenses. You know, they wouldn't have ID. You know, there's one Sufi, there's a story, one Sufi guy was crossing some border, and the border guard said, well, what's your ID? Show us some ID. And the Sufi said, oh, and he pulled out a mirror and said, that's me. <laughs> it's kind of cute. But really, they didn't have any ID. We can't go anywhere with ID. You can't even stay in a hotel in a foreign country without, no, I, got I think you, they want your ID. At least your credit card. But they want your ID. If you steal all their towels, they want to know who you are, and so forth. Well, they had no ID, so, but somehow Shariputra found his buddy, Shariputra found Moghalana, and he recited the same verse. <laughs> you know, that's what people do. You get something really good, you want to share it. It's a natural human tendency. Moghalana heard it, he became a uh, stream mentor right there too. Two good buddies. But what's the deal? I mean, that really... 
back then, was that magical? Was that kind of like some magical elixir, like a wish-fulfilling jewel of a, of a verse that would just you know, sprinkle fairy dust and people would suddenly achieve, you know, realize nirvana by that verse? Or what was the import of it? And then we're going to spend some time here this morning because I think now is the time. And this is enormously important. So I'm trying to share with you my best. I've heard something good. I want to share it. It's naturalistic. It's naturalistic. In which so many people believed in India at that time that what happens to you is because of the gods. It's because of these spirits. It's because of these supernatural elements. It's because of fate. It's just sheer chance. There's no causality. It's just sheer chance. There are all kinds of ideas out there. And the Buddha was saying here, no, independence upon this, this occurs. If this doesn't occur, then that doesn't occur. And of course, the first turning a wheel of Dharma was simply about that. Let's say something we all agree upon. Just like Descartes. Where do we start that is indubitable, absolutely beyond any possibility of doubting? He started with, I think, therefore I am. Okay, that was his best shot. Fair enough. But the Buddha didn't start there. Not I or think or I am. None of the above. Just suffering happens. That was where he started, with his five. Anybody, any qualms, any qualms, any qualms. Speak now or forever hold your peace. Except you're not peaceful, you're miserable. So now let's move on. And he goes to the second noble truth, right? If this happens, then that happens. If there is delusion, craving, and hostility, then watch what happens. There's causality, but we're starting with what you do know, and then I want you to trace it back and see what you don't know, so you can get rid of what you do know. And what you do know is suffering, and you don't want it, you better look at the cause. And don't blame that on your parents, or your childhood upbringing, or society, or economics, or God, or devils, or anything else. It's a naturalistic approach. Your own mind is the root of your suffering. Your own mind is the root of your freedom. Recognize where the real causality is. It's naturalistic. It's worth working within the realm of phenomena. Suffering arises within the realm of phenomena. It doesn't exist independent of measurement. But the causes of suffering also arise within the realm of phenomena, not independent. And therefore, within the, your loka, within your lived experience, your world of lived experience, identify the actual causes of suffering, determine whether they are intrinsically, intrinsically ingrained in your identity, whether they're external and internal, find out that they're internal. Among body, speech, and mind, determine, the mind that is, determine that the mind is primary, that's core Buddhism, not just Dzogchen. And now, within the mind, what aspect of the mind? Don't just say, my mind sucks, that's sloppy. right? Within the mind, are there elements, the eradication of which would free you from suffering? And if so, what are they? And now, who's going to do that for you? An MRI scanner, an EEG, an X-ray? Who's going to do that for you? This is why the Buddha said, be an island unto yourself. Closely apply mindfulness to your body, feelings, mind, and phenomena and determine for yourself. Nobody can do it for you. They can write a book. They can be in our hut and write a book and all you do is read the book. They can't do the work for you. Therefore, be an island unto yourself. It's naturalistic. But naturalistic in the most meaningful sense of the term, empirical sense of the term, non-prejudicial sense of the term, non-metaphysical sense of the term, and that is just observe causal sequences, causal patterns. And you'll see that, something that could not be more obvious, and that is 
that your mental processes, your attitudes, thoughts, desires, emotions, mental afflictions and virtues have every bit as much causal efficacy as your liver, your lungs, rocks, dogs, hurricanes, and anything else in nature. It's an absolutely even ontological plateau when it comes to causality. That's what reality is shouting at us every single day. That there are, there's physical causation, for sure. That's, everybody knows that. But also there's mental causation. And neither one is simply an effluent of the other. That's just a belief. The, the evidence shouts at us that the mind is as real as anything else. Right? And that's Buddhist naturalism. That when you're looking for the nature of suffering, look into the nature of your experience, and that includes your body, social interactions, your mind, look into the physical, the mental, the whole interface between the two, and things that are neither physical nor mental, like information, and many, many other things that are neither physical nor mental. So Buddhism was a pluralistic worldview from the beginning. It was never, uh, what's it called, ontological monism, that everything just boils down to one thing, everything is just the mind, everything is just matter or matter energy. Never did that. Nor Cartesian dualism. Buddhism has never been Cartesian dualist. It's just mind, mind and matter, mind and energy, how do they interface? Buddha's never gone there. It's always understood. Hey, there are many causes that are not physical, many that are not mental. Many are physical, many are mental. And they do interface with each other all the time. And that's the world we're living in. And that was simply all observation. There was no metaphysics in there at all. But then there are primary causes and there are secondary causes. Primary causes and cooperative conditions. Right. So somebody kills members of your family and takes away all your stuff and you have to flee and you wind up in abject poverty. Well, those are causes. That's what other people did to you. Now, what's the effect on your mind? Can they make you unhappy? Can they make you fall into despair? Can they make you angry, full of resentment, bitterness, and wanting for retaliation? Can they make you do that? No, those are cooperative conditions. If something can make you do that, it's your own mind. But your own mind can be filled with resentment even if nobody else does anything to you at all. You can be filled with resentment and have nobody do anything negative to you. Yeah, yeah, but no, but no, but my relative over there, they beat up him up, and I'm feeling so resentful. You know. And then we'll start a clan warfare. You didn't do anything to me, but you, you know, my third cousin twice removed. You know, you punched him on the jaw. Take this. <laughs> you know, anything can be a cooperative condition for malice. It's raining. That really pisses me off. You know, and then, you know, get out there and start doing some damage. So this is one of the tragedies of the modern world, especially the 20th century, that, I mean, those advocating scientific materialism, and I know many of them, and I've had a lot of very rich and informative conversations with them, many of them regard their view as one of naturalism. Naturalism. They don't use the word scientific materialism or physicalism. They say, I'm an advocate of naturalism. I take a naturalist view of the universe and human identity and so forth. Now, that sounds nice, because who's not a nature lover? You know, natural food. I'd rather have artificial food or natural food. And so if you're advocating naturalism, that's good, that's good, that's good marketing. I'm, I'm an, I'm, I advocate naturalism. Oh, how sweet. And then I've, I've had conversations, I mean, so many over the years. Oh, what's natural? What is something that's natural? 
Something is not supernatural. That's the answer. Natural is what's not supernatural. And they'll say, you know, like ghosts and God and angels and all that other stuff that religious people believe in, which is just belief that doesn't have empirical evidence. And so we're not that. We don't go into airy fairyland. We don't believe in superstition. We don't believe, we don't have blind faith. We deal with evidence, evidence. But, but again, what is, what is natural, what's not, what's not natural? What's natural, what's, where's the dividing line between the supernatural and the natural? Well, the natural is the physical world. That's the answer. The natural is the physical world. You know, space, time, matter, energy, and all the cool things that flow out of complex configurations, the emergent properties and so forth, the flow out of complex configurations of space, time, matter, and energy. That's what's natural. And anything that's not that is supernatural. In other words, your mind now is supernatural. Your emotions, your thoughts, your desires, your hopes and fears, your values. Mathematics is now supernatural. Because it's not physical. The laws of mathematics are not made of matter or energy. But now you're supernatural. No, 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 wait, no, 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 no. That your mind, we have a solution for that. Uh, I thought you might raise that. Ghosts don't exist, definitely, because we never, we've never measured them. And, you know, we're the authorities. So ghosts and angels and heaven, hell and afterlife and all that. That's what, you know, ignorant people believe. But we have cut through all that ignorance. Uh, now, mind, yeah, that's a bit of a problem. Uh, but we have a solution. Uh, we have, in fact, we have two solutions. And that is, your mind's an illusion. It actually doesn't exist at all. And therefore, and we've heard people, I don't need to give the names again, uh, there is no mind-body problem. There's no heart problem. And that's because mental processes don't really exist at all. And consciousness doesn't either. So now we can stop talking about it, because that's a non-problem. What really exists is the brain and brain function. And our earliest predecessors were not single-celled organisms, but thermostats. You know, and, and then we are highly evolved thermostats. You know, and consciousness just doesn't, doesn't play a role anywhere, and that's why there's no hard, hard problem. Because consciousness is just not an issue. We just don't talk about it. Or when we do, we say, well, you know, it's just not significant enough to talk about. So there's one of a solution. But if you don't like that one, we've got another one. Mind is the brain. Well, okay, mind is the function of the brain. Well, okay, mind is an emergent property of the brain. Well, now would you please shut up? Because we've solved this. And the press has picked up on that. Now, the truth of this, and any, and there are many honest, thoughtful neuroscientists, psychologists, if you ask them, what is the exact nature of the correlations between subjective experience and the neuronal activities within the brain? What's the actual nature of those correlations? The very thoughtful ones, and there are many, will say, we do not know. We don't know. We don't know whether subjective experience and the correlated neuronal activity are exactly simultaneous or whether there's a bit of a lag time, like maybe 100 milliseconds, which would suggest causation rather than identity. Because if two things are identical, they have to be exactly simultaneous. So the thoughtful ones and the thoughtful philosophers of mind will acknowledge. Uh, we don't know. This is it's a tough one. It's a tough one. How, and again, David Chalmers, the hard problem. How do you go from just the chemicals and electricity in the brain to dreams and emotions and so forth? What's the correlation? What's the actual nature of that relationship? And the thoughtful ones will say, well, we... We just don't know and we don't agree and the philosophers don't agree. They have all kinds of ideas, but they don't agree on anything. 
And the neuroscientists really can't shed much light on it. They simply know that there are correlations, and they identify a lot of them. But what's the nature of the correlation? <coughs> they don't know. And so in, in essence here, and what I've said here is not controversial by people who are paying close attention, the situation here is virtually identical to the situation in quantum mechanics right now. And I gave you the citation from Caltech in another meeting, right? Uh, where they just say, you know, when they get together, the top people in the field and say, we don't agree on anything. The 4% that agree, the, the 4% agree on the mainstream view that's published in all the textbooks. 4% of what they're teaching kids who are learning, you know, elementary quantum mechanics. 4% of them believe what they're teaching the children to be true. 30% believe in something, the Everett multiple role theory, that has no evidence behind it at all. And the other 50 just said, and, you know, and I don't know all the details, but it was something like 50, you remember? Don't know. Just don't know. And this is uncontested in quantum mechanics. I love it. Not in a deprecating or superior way. I love it. This is good science. When scientists have not found consensus, they've got a gnarly problem they've not solved, they get together and they've got all different kind of ideas, they can't agree, and they say, well, there it is. We can't agree. We don't have consensus. And that's the state of the art of quantum mechanics, the most successful branch of modern physics. But we don't know what it has to say about physical reality. We don't know. We just, and it's questionable, my, my physicist friend told me, questionable whether there's been any real progress over the last 90 years since Heisenberg and Schrodinger really mathematized quantum mechanics. That's really honest. I love that. It's science. Really, it's science at its best. They've made brilliant progress, and when they come to something they've not solved, they all get together and they recognize, we've not solved this. And it goes out into the public. We have brilliant science here. It's got tremendous benefits to it, but we don't know what it tells us about physical reality. In fact, we don't know the nature of physical reality. But we certainly have big problems because where we can't live is the 20th, 19th century. That does not exist. That absolutely a real objective world of mechanistic materialism. That, we know, does not exist. There's consensus on that point. That's what quantum mechanics is about. Relativity held, but quantum mechanics entombed that one. Right? So I have only admiration for that. That means when you don't know something and you know you don't know it, then you're prepared to learn something or maybe keep your ears open for something new. Maybe something from outside your field that will catalyze things and move you towards knowledge. In contrast to that, there is a comparable degree of total lack of consensus, confusion, and not knowing in the community of cognitive scientists, and that is psychologists and neuroscientists, and we include the philosophers of mind, they really don't know. There's no evidence, there's no empirical evidence, no study that resolves the issue. How, what's the nature of the correlations? It's a simple question, but there is no study that has some clear evidence. They are the same, they're related, they're causal, they're, one is an emergent property. They don't know, and when they come up with anomalous, they just don't know. And when they come up with an anomaly, that just doesn't fit in the materialistic paradigm. Like the fact, you know, this so-called placebo effect, you have faith in something. And then that faith, expectation, belief, and desire triggers exactly the physiological processes in the brain needed to bring about your expectation. That is a deep mystery. That is so totally weird. That shouldn't be there. And what do they call it? Placebo effect. They don't have the... I'm going to be a bit tough. They don't have the honesty to call it what it is. It's a mental effect. 
It's not a neurobiological effect. Otherwise, you can do it by just tweaking the brain. But you can't. It takes faith, belief, something that is intangible, non-physical, so intangible, trust, that this person has just given you something that will really help. How do you quantify trust? How do you equate that with a neurobiological you know, me- mechanism in the brain? The answer is not happening. This is where passion starts to arise in me. But I'm very much in control here. Watch. They call it placebo effect, which is insulting to the intelligence. And then, get this one, they call it the power of the placebo. You look at Google power of the placebo and see if anything comes up. The power of the power of the placebo. It's a power of a sugar tablet. The placebo has no power at all. That's why it's called a placebo. By definition, it has no power. The power is in your faith, trust, confidence, intelligence. You've got information, you're processing it, and you're superimposing that on your body. That's where the power is. It's subjective power of your mind. But they don't call it that because the mind shouldn't have any power because the mind is the brain, function of the brain, epiphenomena of the brain. It should not have any power of its own. It should just be along for the ride as not an agent because you look in any of the news now, it's always the brain that's the agent. I ha- I've been looking. I read the news every day. I can't remember the last time I saw in science journalism somebody referring to the mind as an agent. I can't remember. It's brain every single time which means the mind's wrong for the ride. It's either non-existent or it's an epiphenomenon. And it's everywhere. The, mind, the brain is the agent. It comes from Nobel laureates, from journalists, from physicists, from psychologists. The brain is the agent. The mind is the brain. The mind is the brain. The mind is what the, the, mind is what the brain does. In other words, they are doing just the opposite of what the very honest phys- physics community is doing, saying in public, we don't know. We don't agree. This is a big mystery. There's a cover-up here that is massive and it's worldwide. It's a cover-up. It's fraudulent. It's really fraudulent. Because they're, they're taking an idea, a hypothesis that I find quite silly. Okay, that's my opinion. But they're presenting it as an, a scientifically established fact. And that's just false. That's fraudulent. That's a lie. And as the old slogan goes, tell a big lie frequently enough. And it becomes a truth. It doesn't matter what the lie is. The mind is the brain. Well, I'm going to say that's a lie. Show me the evidence. If you've got evidence, show me. Show me, show me. There's no evidence. That I know. There is no evidence that shows the equivalence of mind and the brain. But it's everywhere now. Tell a big enough lie. Tell it repeatedly from all sources. Academia, science, journalism, big business, and so forth. And then lo and behold, why would anybody question it? Because they never hear anything different. Like my medical colleagues that tell me when I got all my medical education, I didn't know that we were being fed materialism. I thought it was just medicine. So, now formally on this day, I'd like to file a class action suit on the part of humanity against the agencies who are promoting this great fraud. Scientific community, especially the cognitive sciences, governments and other funding agencies, and the journalists, very much so, want to round you up together. I want to sue you. Because you're a great big corporation. You're like a food corporation. And, you're pro- and it's very expensive. You're a business. We all know that. You take in a lot of money. You make a lot of profit. And you produce a product. And part of your product, and I'm focusing especially on the mind scientist, part of your product is really, really good product. It's based upon rigorous research, well done, meticulous, rigorous, replicable. You've given us an enormous amount of knowledge about the brain especially, but also about the mind. 
that's a good project for that, I only thank you. It's like a food company that's giving us very good food. But you're introducing the additives without telling us, and the additives are highly toxic, extremely toxic. And you're not telling us you added them. You know, if you're paying attention, that they're terribly toxic, but you're covering it up and not letting anybody know that the toxins are not part of the food. They're additives. And the toxins are these metaphysical beliefs assigned in materialism. The mind is the brain. You're a robot. You don't exist. The brain is the agent. You have no free will. Little things like that. Those are the little additives to this splendid body of knowledge that the same scientists are giving us. That's good food. That will enrich us. It is already enriching us. But they're slipping us the additives. Now, is somebody really doing this deliberately? I don't know, but I really feel it must stop. This is absolutely catastrophic. I think it actually might destroy human civilization. That's an opinion, of course. But is it really that dumb? You've got 11 billion people. We're, we're, with this whole worldview, we're focused entirely on the hedonic. Because of materialism, that tells you it's the only place to look. We're going to 11 billion people. Natural resources are diminishing. People are told they're robots, which means we have no resource. All you have to do is connect the dots. There's no social responsibility, of course. I know I'm repeating myself. But this is being perpetrated every single day, so I want a class action suit. So one of you commented to me in a personal meeting that sometimes when I'm speaking, I'm speaking to one person here in Phuket. Sometimes I'm speaking to everyone here in Phuket. Sometimes I'm primarily speaking to people listening by podcast. And sometimes I'm speaking to the world. Right now, everything I'm saying may be totally irrelevant to everybody in this room, because you don't believe any of this scientific materialism business. But right now I'm speaking to the world. Here it is. This is a massive cover-up. This is fraudulent. This is anti-science. There's an enormous amount of good science, but this is anti-science. This is harmful to science. This is harmful to human species, harmful to human civilization, demoralizing to the individual, disempowering. It's catastrophic. And it's being presented, the worst part, it's being presented as scientifically validated. Now, that's just a big lie. So, we need to broaden the sense of what is natural. Back to common sense. Back to what we already know to be true. That our desires, our beliefs, our hopes and fears and so forth are influencing our mind. That we are the agents and we have to take responsibility for it. We are human beings. We are responsible for our actions. Don't blame it on your brain or your genes or your parents or anything else. We're responsible for our deeds. Right? We need to take back the reins of power away from the pharmaceutical industries and all those who would dehumanize this into robots, animals, or something less, or nothing whatsoever, and take it back. They've robbed us. And if you think I'm thinking of some, some person, like, oh, this guy, this guy, or that, that university, I'm not. It's delusion we're talking about. I'm not targeting people, like, let's round them up and punish them. That's nowhere in my mind. But I'm being very tough here. And what's the target? What's the target of my toughness here? It's delusion. It's delusion. It's coming from ignorance, perpetrated by delusion, and in a whole network which is dominated by the pursuit of wealth, power, and prestige. And that's where science is today. It's a business dominated, like every other business, by wealth, power, and prestige. That wasn't the case 100 years ago. That wasn't the case when Einstein was doing his equations. That wasn't the case when James Clerk, James Clerk Maxwell, 1865, came out with his brilliant ones. Or Darwin, it wasn't the case then, let alone going back to Newton and Galileo. It was not the case. These were really free thinkers. There was very little money involved, if any, 
no great prestige. When Einstein, when he came out in 1905, he still was a third-class patent clerk. It took him seven more years before he got a job, a real job. He couldn't get a job as a high school teacher. You know, so no, he did not do that for wealth, prestige, or power. He did that out of a, a longing to know what is true. You know, so we're going to go on today, and that, but that's it for the 21st century. And so that was the extraordinary story of Shariputra, and a little bit of backup. This is all from the Pali Canon. This is from Udana. When things are fully manifest to the ardent meditating Brahman, his doubts all vanish, for he knows that each thing has, has to have its cause. It's fascinating. It happens a lot in the Buddhist teachings that he'll take a common word and then flip it. So you all know Brahmans. Were they the high caste? They're the people in charge. They, you know, by, just by birthright, they're the, kind of the caste-wise aristocrats of India. They had all the privilege, right? But now, is he referring to somebody of high caste? No, he's referring to anybody from the lowest caste, middle and high, who's devoting themselves to Dharma. That's the true nobleman. That's the true aristocrat. The person who is devoting him or herself to the pursuit of truth and liberation. He calls them the Brahmins, which basically is throwing out the whole caste system with that one phrase. The ardently meditating Brahman. You know? it's, uh, he was a revolutionary. He was upsetting the, the, the apple cart in India throwing things topsy-turvy, throwing society into, into total state of unrest, challenging assumptions right, left, and center. But it comes back, each thing has to have its cause, back to causality. Here's from the Madhyamaka Nikaya. A phenomenological account of causality from the words of the Buddha. That comes to be when there is this. That arises with the arising of this. That does not come to be when there is not this. That ceases with the cessation of this. Anybody? Nirvana, Nirvana, stream enterer? <laughs> okay, I can read it again if you like. You know. it's, you'll see there it's entirely phenomenological. It's entirely within the realm of your experience. You're never being denigrated. But I think you don't really know. Only we priests know. Only we priests know the will of God. Only we priests can read the Bible. Only we, we Buddhist monks, we can read the Pali Canon. Only we scientists, we don't have illusion. You remember Freud? Science is not illusory. You people, yeah, they're not doing that. He's saying, you're the center of your mandala. You watch. This happens, and then that happens. This doesn't happen, and that doesn't happen. No reference to underlying mechanisms. No built-in reification just in your world of your experience, where you suffer and you don't like it. You're perpetuating the cause of suffering. You have a possibility of liberation. There's a way to do it. That's all where you live. Nobody's doing a one-upmanship on you. Again, but now it goes deeper. He who sees dependent arising, he who sees dependent arising, dependent origination, right? Pratita Sambhapada. He who sees dependent arising sees the Dhamma. He who sees the Dhamma sees dependent arising. So the two coming profoundly together. Now, for those of you background in, in Madhyamaka, perfection of wisdom and so forth, just let the dominoes roll. There's the core. There's it right there. And then finally, from the Samyutta Nikaya, he who sees the Dharma, the Buddha says, he who sees the Dharma sees me. 
he who sees me sees the Dhamma. It all collapses into one. So another point, still within the Pali Canon. I love it. That's why I love to come home to. Kind of right, it feels like the kind of the granite foundation of the whole edifice all the way up to Dzogchen. But in a way, nothing higher than lower. Was it was any deeper statement than one just read? You know, for some people, that was for Shariputra when he heard that. That's the deepest thing he could possibly hear because in a finger snap, he became stream enterer. What's higher than that? You know. So there's no real hierarchy here, as as. Gantadugarambaji says so wonderfully. We often think of this is the lowest yana. Well, you know, Shravaka yana. But then Bodhisattva, okay, that's better. And then, oh, now we're at Dzogchen. Now we're up at the top of the peak. Uh, one way of looking at it. The other way, remember, just one great big cake, any part of the cake, that's the best for you. That's your Dzogchen. Right. Shravaka yana, whatever. Or if we see Padmasambhava, for some it's Atman. It's Atman. They're practicing Hinduism. And for then, right now, realization of Atman. That's their, that's their great perfection. Padmasambhava, right? He said, that's the great perfection for some. So, but this theme now will go on until about a little bit before 11. And I need to, then I can just easily postpone all the interviews for the morning one hour. This is so important. It's so core. And I'm finished with the 21st century. If you don't like that, don't worry, it's finished. If you like living in the 17th century, it was more, more something, I don't know. Something. So here's from, um, I plug my poor little run to the litter, Meditations of a Buddha Skeptic. Um, the Buddha rejected on pragmatic grounds any theory that undermined the sense of moral responsibility. On the one hand, he rejected determinism as supporting inaction, or akirya. If one is not responsible for one's actions, the will to act in a wholesome way and not an unwholesome way is stifled. So, determinism. That was a view back then. It was one of the views out there in the wind, fate. Determinism. Whether it's because of the gods or simply fate or because of physical determinism, whatever, it all basically boils down to determinism, that you have no freedom. You're actually, you have a sense of making choices and being responsible for them. Got that one wrong. Like Einstein said. He believed in determinism. You're actually not making any choices at all. You have the feeling that you are, that's an illusion. And he wanted to advocate social responsibility. That's a tough sell. Well, the Buddha, was, he always follows the dots. He always follows a position to its logical conclusion. He said, if you believe this, then there's a call to inaction. Because why the hell should you do anything? Why should you, you know, when you, once you know that you're a cog in a machine, once you know you're a puppet, what would you decide? Say, I want to use a real vulgar term, but let's say screw it and then connect the dots. Uh, then in that case, why should I do anything? If that's it, I'm, I'm just a puppet, then screw you. I'm just going to hang out, jerk away. If that's the way it is, I'm not going to give any effort. I'm a puppet. I'm a cog in a big machine. I'm not responsible for anything. Then I'm not going to try for anything at all. I have no responsibility. I'm nothing. I'm just a tool. So that's what I'd feel like. I'm not going to strive for liberation. I'm either predestined to get it or not. Maybe there isn't any. I don't even know what it would mean if I'm just predetermined already. So screw it. I'm not responsible for anything. I'm not doing anything. And, and why should I try to cultivate virtue? I can't cultivate anything. I'm not, doing, I'm not an agent. 
I'm not going to try to avoid non-virtue. I'm not going to cultivate virtue. I'm not an agent. I'm not doing anything anyway. So why should I pretend? Screw it. That's, that would be my response, if I really believe that. Isn't that a reasonable response? If you're not an agent, then don't pretend. But that's catastrophic for, for your life and everybody else, human civilization. Now you've just flushed it down the toilet. But I said, don't go there. If the empirical evidence, he didn't say, but if the empirical evidence were incontrovertible, then bite the bullet, bear it if you can. It's not. It's just a belief. But now, I said I wouldn't go to the 21st century. I lied. No, I just mis took, made a mistake. <laughs> you are your brain. You are your brain. Well, then you're not an agent. Your brain's the agent. The brain operates according to the laws of biology and physics. You've heard it so many times now. You're not an agent, which means you're not responsible. Go punish my brain. Find a part of the brain that did it. Electrocute it. But don't mess with me. I didn't do it. I didn't do anything because I don't exist. Or if I do, I'm not an agent because you've already told me I'm not responsible for anything because I'm not making any choices. The brain does everything. You just told me. You just told me that all of my mental problems are neurobiological processes. So why should I try to do anything? Screw it. Fix my brain. That's contemporary. That catastrophic view. But if it's just one more dumb view or one terribly mis mis you know, mistaken view, then you can say, well, okay, at least there are a lot of them. But this is one getting presenting as if it's scientifically validated. That's where I start bursting into flame. That's a lie. It's not just a false view. That's a big lie. So the Buddha refuted that one. On the one hand, determinism. On the other hand, he said, he rejected indeterminism of asser asserting that all experiences and events arise due to pure chance without reliance on any causes or conditions. Ahetu apachaya. Ahetu apachaya. So, you see, they were pretty sophisticated thinkers back then. Well, the Buddha re re rejected both of them for the same reason. And that if some right actions are happening for no reason at all, then I'll just watch it happen. Because I don't know whether I'm going to start screaming or shouting profanities or raping somebody or giving away all my goods out of compassion. I have no idea what's coming up because it's coming up for no reason at all. And if that's the case, then I'm not responsible. How can I be? If there's no causes at all, then I'm as helpless here as I was with determinism. Right? Well, these are what we get right now in modern science. Your brain is a biological organism. And the cells are operating widely believed according to the laws of classical physics. That's completely deterministic. Everybody knows that. But might there be quantum effects in the brain? Way down there on the elementary particle level. After all, you can say the brain is composed of elementary particles and the fields they generate. On the elementary particle level, there are quantum effects. So might there be kind of like a butterfly effect or something very subtle on the quantum level that is repercussing up, reverberating up to the macro level of molecules and cells and cell electric discharges and so forth? Might there be quantum effects on the brain? If that sounds very cool to you, don't feel too happy too soon. Because those quantum effects, according to the general consensus in quantum mechanics, are occurring for no reason at all. Quantum a-causality. So now you've got your choice. You can be a, either a deterministic brain or an indeterministic brain. One is just you're a machine. The other one is you're a crazy machine. Acting for no reason at all. And those are the two big options right now in modern neuroscience. 
The notion there might be another option is nowhere taught. Or if it is, I'd really love to learn, learn about it so I can call it from the rooftops and out over the podcast. There is this neuroscience department in such and such a university in such a country where they are saying there are alternatives besides mechanistic materialism. We're always looking for the underlying neural mechanisms and the alternative beyond there are stochastic random events in the brain from the quantum level. There's a third alternative that actually imbues each individual with more responsibility, with dignity, that you have a brain, you're using your brain, and you're responsible for everything you do voluntarily. Um, out of the podcast, if you know somebody teaching that in the neuroscience club, I want to praise that very publicly. I've never heard of it myself, but then I'm quite ignorant. So there's our predicament. That is, where do we fit? I think we need to go to physics. Because the neurobiologists are not helping us out. And there's a reason for that. They don't study 20th, 20th century physics. They're still looking for underlying neural mechanisms. You know, clunk, clunk, grinding gears. You know, mechanistic materialism that actually went out of date, was antiquated, and has never been revitalized since 1865. That's when James Clerk Maxwell wrote his equations that uh, Freeman Dyson, and I'm quoting momentarily, one of our brilliant contemporary theoretical physicist, retired now, but for years was at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton, where Einstein was, where John Wheeler was. Um, 1865, James Clerk Maxwell, according to Freeman Dyson, one of our top physicists, this was one of the two most significant events in the, tw in the 19th century in terms of modern science. One was the publication of Origin of Species by Darwin, the other one in 1865 when James Clerk Maxwell uh, presented his equations describing and making intelligible all electromagnetic activity, magnetic and electric fields in the universe. And it boiled down to just four equations. You know. And they, but they so mystified, they so mystified the scientific community that it was only 20 years later that they were widely accepted. And there was a good reason. They were difficult, and eventually they were synopsized down to four equations. So when I was studying physics, I learned about these, of course. And I got so interested because I, was he I heard these equations, if you're looking for beauty in mathematics, here's a place to go. Beauty in mathematics. And so I said, I want to learn those. So I found, where I went to school was so marvelous, Amherst College, the whole five, college, five colleges there in, in Massachusetts. I found a professor, and I asked him, would you please, I want to spend 12 weeks, because I'd already had some training. I had pretty good background in mathematics and physics by then. He said, I would like to understand and appreciate the beauty of Maxwell's equations. Would you teach me one-on-one -on -one these equations so I can understand them, savor them, and appreciate their beauty? And I found somebody to do that. And by the way, I got all my education for free. They pay for everything. I'm very grateful. So Freeman Dyson, he's, he's quite extraordinary. Freeman Dyson, I've read a number of pieces by him. He never disappoints. I always find he's just a deep thinker. And of course, he's a brilliant physicist. So Freeman Dyson, this whole notion that the only phenomena in nature that are causally efficacious are physical. Freeman Dyson. We're going to read this and I go. I, I now quote from a paper he wrote. We now take it for granted that electric and magnetic fields are abstractions, not reducible to mechanical models. 
An electric field strength is an abstract quantity, incommensurable with any quantities that we can measure directly. The Maxwell theory became elegant and intelligible only after the attempts to represent electromagnetic fields by means of mechanical models were abandoned. It took 20 years. To see the beauty of quantum mechanics, he goes on to a parallel. To see the beauty of quantum mechanics, it is necessary to move away from verbal descriptions and into the abstract world of geometry. Mathematics is a language nature speaks. The language of mathematics makes the world of Maxwell fields and the world of quantum processes equally transparent. That was not a controversial thing he just said. People who really understand what happened in the 20th century in physics know that any mechanistic notion of the universe is as antiquated as a horse and buggy. It's charming, it's cute, but it is so out of date. And to see whole branches of science that are still there is really quite a travesty. But that's because of the compartmentalization of modern academia. But when he says geometry, that what's out there, what's out there? When we make measurements, yeah, then it becomes classical, just like in quantum mechanics. But what's out there, what's out there? He said, well, okay, you really have to ask. Mathematical abstractions. What are mathematical abstractions? Thoughts. But how can thoughts be out there? Do they, what, they hover all by themselves? What is a thought without a thinker? What is a thought without a referent? We're back to that again, aren't we? And we said we need to move into the world to understand quantum mechanics. We need to move into the world of geometry, into pure forms. Also true of, of relativity theory. Geometry is geometry rocks. Can't understand relativity theory without geometry. It's what's there? What's there? When we're, you know, what's there? Geometry and mathematical abstraction, mathematical abstractions. Ever heard of the form realm? Where are these ideas coming from? When Einstein, in his spare time, while working as a patent clerk, he's having these wild ideas coming up in imagery. And then with struggle, he gets them into words. But first imagery. And just flowing right out of his mind as he's just sitting there with a pad and a pencil. You know. So this is a creative process. It comes from, he said, I did not make my discoveries by observing a lot of empirical evidence and then deducing an evidence, a theory from them. I just sat there and blah, 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 you know, out they came. And then I mathematically formalized them and then presented them and then, and then history happened. Final note on, on Buddhism. Your substrate consciousness is your portal to the form realm. Uncontested statement, that's true. How do you get to the form realm? By way of your substrate consciousness, by way of access to the first jhana, which is achieving shamatha. You know? And you're accessing information in the form realm which is more fundamental than the physical manifestations we are seeing here, which look pretty classical. A realm of pure form. That's what it's called pure form, subtle form. Sounds a wee bit like maybe geometry. And it's collective. It's not your mathematics versus my mathematics. My substrate versus yours, yes. But it's a portal to a dimension of reality, archetypal perhaps in nature. So causality winds up being so immensely and almost inconceivably richer than this clunky, antiquated, grinding notion of mechanistic materialism that's still dominating the mind sciences, therefore dominating the press. That you can't have a faith effect. You have to call it something that it's absolutely and obviously not.
cover up. Uh, let's uncover. You know, the truth shall make us free. Good. That's what I wanted to share with you this morning. Enjoy your day.